This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Ian Turner. Welcome to the 99th edition of Garden of Sound. Today's guest is Godfrey de Groot. What hasn't this man done musically? A fantastic sax player who you've probably heard around dinner time. He also wrote the Silver Scroll winning Misty Frequencies back in 2002 with Shea Fu. But now, in his early 40s, he's semi-retired, passing his musical genius on to the youth at Auckland University. And we are thankful for it. But what lies ahead for this jazz and rock-loving character from New Zealand's musical storybook? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Godfrey de Groo on Plains FM 96.9. Godfrey, can you tell me the first time you realised there was such a thing as music in your life? Yes, um, this is an indelible memory I have. I was five years old in Australia. My father picked me up from school and he said, I've bought this thing called a, a Walkman. Put these over your ears. And this was like an old school Walkman and the, the bright orange muffs attached with a, um, a steel band between them. And he played Bowie, um, Let's Dance. And that was the very first time I'd heard music inside my brain in, in incredible stereo quality. Around that time, I do also remember hearing things like Icy Red mm-hmm. from Split Ends. And I do remember hearing Africa from Toto in a library in Australia. That was quite a strong memory as well. Um, but it was so ambient listening to that music when it's from a stereo in a room. It, it didn't quite hit me like the Walkman did. From then on, I, I think I gravitated toward using headphones quite a lot. When did you get your own personal piece of musical equipment, or stereo equipment at least? I think I got a Walkman when I was about nine years old, and I listened to Jimi Hendrix. I bought an album from the record store called Cornerstones, which was a greatest hits compilation. And I thrashed that entirely. Why Jimi Hendrix? My uncle was into Hendrix and Zeppelin and all the classic rock stuff, um, Stones and the Beatles. And I just remember him showing me videos of Jimi Hendrix and I just thought it was just way too cool. So was there any music of the day that you were interested in? In 87, immediately I'm thinking kind of Guns N' Roses or, or Bon Jovi or something. For some reason... I don't know why I listened to more of the Hendrix at that point. I just thought it was cooler for some reason. I, th- I don't know. But I, I had Slippery Wind Wet. I had Crowded House, Midnight Oil, all of these tapes my parents had bought me. Um, yeah, I was totally where Def Leppard. I was listening to that. But I, I just kept on coming back to the Hendrix thing for some reason. When did you realize that you were, you were a musical person, that you could play I think I went to small schools and generally um, I was always able to uh, to get into the bands in the schools uh, if it was, you know, um, I, I don't even think there was much of a uh, auditioning process for the, the bands at intermediate or even college level. So I just always ended up in playing in the, in the bands. What were you playing at this point? I was mainly playing saxophone and... 
a little bit of guitar and keyboards. Why the sax predominantly? Uh, back in the 80s, I think there was a program in primary schools to encourage students to learn the recorder. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and um, I got good at the recorder, and the next step from that was saxophone, because it's a f- similar fingering system, uh-huh. sax and flute, clarinet, but I thought the saxophone was cooler. My parents agreed, thankfully. Oh, I remember I went to a Nathan Haynes play. I was, I must have been about 10. And my, my father was teaching at, at uh, Northcote College, where Nathan was a student in his, in his seventh form year. And Nathan was playing in the orchestra for their um, musical, which I think was West Side Story. Nathan played a little bit out the front before the, the, the musical started, like a little jazz combo. And I remember my dad taking me and saying, you've got to check out this guy, he's amazing. And I remember just being completely in awe of this very cool-looking guy who just played amazing saxophone. So was it always jazz, or was there some more, I use the term contemporary offerings, other groups that you got involved with? Any rock bands for Godfrey? From about third form, I was basically just listening to Led Zeppelin um, and Steely Dan and kind of fusion jazz. I kind of missed out on listening to classic jazz like 40s 50s 60s jazz and kind of jumped straight into the into the 70s I don't, I, I don't quite know why maybe it was the people I was hanging out with or um, something but I, I, I did miss out on a whole many eras of jazz and I, I've since had to go back and explore those things why why do you think it appeals to you because it's not everyone's cup of tea i enjoy the pyrotechnics probably i i enjoy um listening to musicians who have um, a mastery and control of their instrument and the the language of music that they're utilizing is quite sophisticated i enjoy that as a as a, as a listener it probably started with listening to steely dan and then finding out the session musicians who were working on steely dan records and looking at their own material from from the 70s and early 80s. And I kind of probably fell into it that way. I, I do remember looking at the liner notes of Steely Dan Records and, and seeing there was this guy called Tom Scott and then trying to find some Tom Scott records. And I just quite enjoyed that. And probably at the same time, I found swing music and bebop quite intimidating because... The level of sophistication of that music was um, an order of magnitude again, and I couldn't quite work that out. It's only in the last decade that I've managed to go back and kind of figure some of that stuff out. It is time for some music, and um, we really have gone around the traps from uh, Bon Jovi to to Jimi Hendrix, and obviously talked a lot about jazz. Um... Is there any particular artist out there that sort of might typify the way Godfrey de Grew um, would write or produce or play even? If I, if I could do anything, I would probably want to be in a rock band like Def Leppard. Okay. Circa Hysteria. Yeah. <laughs> even, you know, Bon Jovi, um, Slippery and Wet. It's around 87, 88. Yep. Was, was the time. Oh, my gosh. It's... It's just so magical. Yeah. And um, and soon after that, Aerosmith managing to do, do an Come amazing back with comeback. Pump. Yeah, which is a, it's, it's an amazing 
amazing. That era, for some reason, I just love the rock and roll from from those those years. What can we listen to right now? I, I, I think I would like to listen to um, IGY from Donald Fagan on his The Nightfly album from 1982, I believe. I had a tape of it, um, and it was the only tape I I owned in in the car I had in the car, of course, back in you know, 20 years ago. It only had a tape player, and I literally just <laughs> had this tape of the Nightfly playing on continuous loop for about a year. And my friends would come in to the car when I'd you know be driving with them, and they'd, they'd oh. go, "Oh, what track are we up to now?" Oh, really? And I'd say, "Oh, I think it's just about for Greenflower Street." And my friends even started recognizing um, the time between songs. So they'd, they'd kind of listen to the end of one song and then they'd conduct the starting point of the next Brilliant. song because they'd become so used to hearing this album. Well, they thrashed. One for everyone. What a beautiful world. 
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Godfrey de Groo on Plains FM 96.9. Godfrey, I want to talk about gigs. Do you remember the first big gig that you got along to as a young person? I managed to attend quite a few shows, probably um, accompanied by my parents. I remember I went to U2. Wow. When they came on the um, Rattle and Hum tour, um, probably the first one I was most conscious of was attending Arturo Sandoval with the Roger Fox Big Band at the Auckland Town Hall when Roger brought Arturo out. And this is because my music teacher, Disguisinger, had told the music class that they really needed to attend this concert it was really important to kind of get a um, an understanding of what a, a great big band sounded like and that show was really really again life-changing it made me think holy moly I really want to be involved with a big band we I mean I was in a big band in school but we were not playing the kind of music that Roger Fox was playing and so that gave me a lot of um a lot of drive to try to get good enough to maybe one day play in the Roger Fox big band. So the route was always sort of heading in the uh, in the, the musical direction. Now you have played with a Roger Fox big band. Yeah, um, I I practiced and practiced, and and then one day um, Roger gave me a, a phone call and said, uh, "There's a spot opening up in the band, and would you be able to join?" And I said, "Oh." I, I don't. Well, the spot was um, second tenor. Okay. And I didn't own a tenor saxophone, mm-hmm. and I said, "Oh, sorry, I don't own a tenor." And I just said, "Oh, maybe you can find one. Just give me a call in the next couple of days." And my grandparents heard that I'd I'd been asked by Roger, and they said, "Well, well, we'll um, we'll we'll scrimp together, and we'll sell something. We'll buy you a tenor saxophone." And I was like, "Oh my god!" And they did, and I got a tenor, and I. I called up Roger and I said, I found a tennis saxophone, I'll join. And he said, cool. And then about a year after that, the lead alto player left. And um, and then I, I started playing lead alto in, in, the, in the Fox Band. And I did it for 16 years. And it was crazy. It was amazing. Really amazing experience. What were you doing aside from the, the band while you were part of the band for all those years? Um, I was still trying to do... Um, on smaller ensemble stuff with kind of uh, more modern jazz kind of groups and I'd started doing popular music and working with more of the hip-hop artists and the, some and the rock musicians essentially the fox band we rehearsed on a monday night and we'd have a gig maybe once a month and once every two months so it wasn't it wasn't a lot of time having to be spent working on that type of material and um, it just kept you in the game and it made sure that I was I was reading a lot of music and I was being exposed to a lot of uh, amazing arrangements and Roger would bring out the most incredible artists to tour around New Zealand and year after year Roger would bring out the most craziest drummers Dave Weckl and Greg Bissonette and Steve Smith and and then he'd bring out, you know, musicians like Michael Brecker. It was just ludicrous. I mean, we were on stage with Michael Brecker. And we did eight shows around New Zealand. 
And every night my, my jaw is on the floor, being like 10 paces from this absolute musician colossus guy. He played my saxophone he, backstage. He said, hey, what's that saxophone you got? And I said, oh, it's this uh, Selma Mark VI. He said, can I play it? And I was just like, I was pissing my pants. I was like, do I give him my saxophone? And I just gave it to him. And he, he didn't even wipe the reed. He was like, yeah, whatever. And he just played the most amazing music. And then he gave it back to me and he said, yeah, it works pretty good. Were you writing anything at this stage? Yeah, I, I think I'd always wanted to kind of um, to be um, composing music. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Even from, I think, the last maybe year of college, I was I was writing jazz music, instrumental music. And probably when I got to university, I started kind of writing songs. Is there an emotional connection between you and the music? No, no, not really. I, I know I like the sound of things. I do know, however, of other musicians who are very much involved in the emotion of the song. Have you been on stage where somebody that you've been supporting has has really gone there to such a point where it's become uncomfortable? <laughs> um, I did a tour with Jen Wigmore. I, th- I thought she was really crazy. And she was quite um, very full-on personality. And she would really go there in her performances. And the first night, I was really shocked. I was like, holy moly, this is not what I'm expecting. I'm not sure that it's authentic. And then the second night, third night, fourth night, and she would go out and she would smash the show. And it would, she'd be... It, it looked as though she was giving it absolutely 100%. And she was exhausted at the end of every night, physically and emotionally. And then it made me realize, oh my God, she just goes into this frame of mind where she just lives the music. This is New Zealand, so it might be a ridiculous question. Uh, where, where's where's the money in music? I've got no answer. Okay. I think the money where should it would be? be... Oh, an even harder question. <laughs> Um, it's it's really hard for um, for me to kind of figure out because I'm conflicted. Honestly, I'm conflicted. On the one side, I think a lot of music is um, slightly competitive. Popular music is it's very nature. It's competitive. It's commercial, and you have to present the thing that people are going to like. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, my brain is saying, you should be able to make artistic music for art's sake. And I haven't been able to to bridge the gap between those two things. I haven't been able to find a compromise. So quite often I'll end up spending some of my time doing artistic things that I know will never make any money. (laughs) In the other half, I'm just paying the rent. Somewhat Um, of a privileged position. Yes, I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky. My wife reminds me every day. She says, hey, get out of bed. You're a lucky son of a bitch. Go and make something. Go and create something. It's time for some more music. Have you got an all-time fave, something you've carried with you always that's delightful and de lovely? There's one track um, by a, a guitarist called Wayne Krantz, a New York-based guitarist. Pretty much everything I listen to is in some way tangential to Steely Dan. He 
has toured with Steely Dan back in 1996, 90, I believe, and subsequently had recorded on some Steely Dan albums and some Donald Fagan albums. I don't know how I came across this album. I think, I have a feeling, I had visited Marbex, which was this thing called a record store. Oh, wow. And One of those. <laughs> Back in 1996, it was on Queen Street, and they'd have like a, a shelf of you know new jazz releases. And I came across this one, and I just gave it a chance. And this is the first track on the album, and it's a live recording. Pretty much everything Wayne Krantz has released has been a live, a live recording, and um, it just completely blew my socks off. I could not understand what was going on. Years later, oh. 99 well yeah in 99 i managed to get to new york and go and see him live and it was it was all that it was just a phenomenal musician and very free as well very very kind of open Um, a lot of improvisation between the musicians and the track i've chosen is one called whippersnapper which is just a trio with him uh, zach danziger and lincoln goines um and i listen to this quite a lot to this day, once a month at least. Thank you. 
This is the Gardner Sound interview with Godfrey DeGruy on Plains FM 96.9. Godfrey, um, not only are you a musician, but you are also an educator. Uh, you're at Auckland University. Um, uh, how did that gig come about? Had you done any sort of teacher training or anything? Or is it just the fact that you were such a fabulous muse they wanted to have you? Um, I'd done no teacher training, but I had... Um I, I'd been teaching saxophone for many years at that point, and a friend of mine had been working as an instrumental tutor at the at the university, and they recommended to the senior management that I uh, start taking some classes on on teaching piano, and then I gradually started teaching more and more classes composition and theory and and ended up um well, spending the last 12 years teaching there and the last i think it's been since yeah i think it's been at least eight years full time what do you think are the will go either way the positives and the negatives uh of the musical composition that you've seen from young people in that time people have been getting better at at collaborating, we seem to have a perception that an artist should write their own songs and that the greatest artists are everything. They're their own lyricist and accompanist and producer. And and it does work sometimes. You've got your Anika Moores who can do everything or your Brooke Frasers. Um, but everywhere else in the world, people are quite comfortable um, collaborating and working with specialists. So there'll be a specialist lyricist, there'll be a specialist drum programmer. Um, And it's taken quite a while for us culturally to become uh, more open to that. So I'm really glad that now the program I'm working in tries to um, promote the idea of effective and efficient collaboration. And on the negative side? The thing that I sometimes am concerned about is that the university can be a bit of a bubble and you can be safe inside the bubble and you don't know what it's like to be working in in the industry. And the industry is very topsy-turvy as well and and sometimes Mm. it's pretty hard to get a a footing. Yep. it's hard to perform um, at live venues. You don't make any money and it's it's a challenge. So we, we also try to make sure that our students are, are, are getting out into the uh, community and trying to perform and, and do gigs and figure out what it's like to talk to a bar manager and squabble over money and making sure that, you know, there are enough XLR leads for your, your setup. It's all these kind of like little things you don't really think about, but if you don't have that down, you just it's going to be so hard to kind of get your foot in the door in the industry. So let's take a trip back 25 years and knowing what you know now, is there anything that 17-year-old Godfrey would have done differently? I often think about my colleagues that I work with who are in the jazz department. And, um, for instance, there's a, a great keyboard player called um, Kevin Field who plays with Nathan Haynes and has for many years played with Nathan Haynes, played with Nathan on Shift Left. 
And I used to think when I listened to Kevin 20 odd years ago that he was the greatest keyboard player in the world. And he still is the greatest keyboard player in the world because he just keeps on getting better and better and better. And now I listen to him, I'm like, holy moly, what have you been doing the last 20 years? And he said, I've been practicing. <laughs> so you can never ever take it for granted. You can't just rest on your laurels. And and a lot of the time, I think I end up focusing on different things. I'll focus on saxophone for a while, or I'll focus on keyboards. Or For the last year, I've been focusing on guitar. And it's jack of all trades, master of none. I enjoy thinking about different instruments and finding new things to do or you know, engineering or producing them on computers. But I would really have loved to have really knuckled down, probably in my teens, and got really, really good at one instrument. You mentioned production. When did your first foray into producing, whether it was something of your own or something for somebody else, when did that, when did that happen? The actual first time I, I got a production credit was working with a band called Dukes, which is a Christchurch band, or was a Christchurch band. And they asked me to, to work on their, their, an EP that they'd done, and I provided keyboards for them. And, and I don't think they ever released it, but they decided that they were going to do an album. Um, and they had Lorraine Barry behind them, mm-hmm. who is a powerhouse producer um, who looks after Dave Dobbin, for instance. And she kind of got them thinking about doing an album, and we did a single. And I, I got a production credit as the producer on the single called Vampires. But it was a really neat track. And then they subsequently did an album, and I, I did. I got production credit on that too. Did you have any involvement in the production of Misty Frequencies? No. Um, <laughs> that whole that whole album, Navigator, was was pretty much just Shay and P Money. I think we'd 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 practiced the song a few times in rehearsal, and I don't even think we'd actually performed it live. I'd gone to Shay's home studio and we'd done like a little demo. And then I remember going into Revolver. They had all the keyboards there. I think I brought my, my Rhodes in. And I, I heard the drums for the first time, the Paul Russell drums. And I listened to them and I said, um, is, this, is this the final take? And she said, yeah. And I said, it sounds really, um, uh, really crappy. And he said, yeah, man, thanks. We worked really hard to make it sound like that. And I could not understand it. I was like, oh, you're in the most amazing studio in the country. Um, why does it sound like you recorded on like a, a $2 microphone? It does sound like there is a hiss. Yeah. And he said, oh, it's because we recorded on a $2 microphone. <laughs> I said, why did you do that? And he said, because that sounds cool. And I had, I just had no idea. I, I, I wasn't listening to a lot of hip hop. I didn't know what the historic kind of context was of sampling i didn't know about um jay diller about, and all of his bits yeah i didn't know about the aesthetics yes of the music that shay was into yeah. 
And so I was like, oh, God, okay, well, I'll, I'll do the best I can. And I, I, I remember tracking all the keys stuff, and I remember Shay said, oh, I've got this idea for this, this clav line. Can you do this? And I was like, oh, okay, yep. And there's this little kind of thing I do on the clav, and, and um, I said, that's really good. That's a really cool line. He goes, remember, that was my idea. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, dude, that's your idea. I won't take credit. And then Chip went in and did the bass line, and it's a really simple song. It's just keys, drums, a little bit of guitar. And a killer bridge. Yeah, great, great times. Great times on, yeah. on the bridge. And I, I really didn't know what I was what I was doing. I probably still actually don't. Um, I, I know my limitations more now. Moving forward to practically today, there is a um, piece that you have worked on very recently. Uh, it's a celebration of the work of Catherine Mansfield. How did that come about? Who decided... Let's put some Catherine Mansfield works to music. Who, who approached you to do this? About six years ago, Charlotte Yates emailed me out of the blue. Um, we've spoken on the phone since, but I've never actually met her. But I, I knew who she was, and she said, look, I've got this concept for a, a Catherine Mansfield poetry album. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, of course. Sounds amazing sounds crazy um i'm all up for that and she said right I'll, I'll see if i can get the grant and i'll get back to you and i didn't hear from her for six years and then she emailed me again and she said right i've got the money and we're all go i'm going to send you a track wow. um of um this poetry can you do the music to it and i said totally it sounds good glad to hear from you again <laughs> And um, I didn't know who else was actually on the on the album. I just thought it was a really cool idea. I just had a couple of ideas for it and um, started kind of blocking them out more. And she provided a budget. So I called up some friends and and they could work on it. And, and you just went crazy. Night Scented Stock, Godfrey de Groo, uh, and Catherine Mansfield with Tusiata Avia. White. White in the milky night, the moon danced over a tree. Wouldn't it be lovely to swim in the lake? Someone whispered to me. Oh, do, do, do. Could someone else and clasped her hands to her chin? I should so love to see the white bodies, all the white bodies jump in. The big dark house hid secretly behind the magnolia and the spreading pear tree. But there was a sound of music, music rippled and ran, like a lady laughing behind her fan, laughing and mocking and running away. Blue. His white feet 
locked in the shadow of the dark house wall, someone beside her. It shone in the gloom his round grey hat. Like a wet mushroom. Someone's flute. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Godfrey de Gru on Plains FM 96.9. Uh, just checked out Night Centred Stock Bananas. There you go. That's all I can say. It's it's insane and beautiful and wondrous. What does the future hold when you when you grow up and become a big adult person and such? <laughs> I'm working on my masters at the moment in music uh-huh. and I I probably don't have to, but my bosses at the university have kind of dropped a few hints that I should be doing that. So I've taken the bait, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm working on that, and it's going to be um, a collection of songs that investigate the overlaps between jazz and R and B and mm. rock, Brilliant. which are the three things I'm mainly interested in anyway. Uh, what about the um, what about the performance side of things? Um, anyone that you're working with? I, I don't really work with anybody anymore. I'm I'm in semi-retirement. I only really play with El P now, which is fun. Um, I do that show because they're just amazing, great people, and the music's awesomely fun, and the fans really dig it. Um, but yeah, I don't really do much other live stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think the next year is just going to be spent doing the masters and writing the music for that, which is I think fifteen songs that have to be written. Uh, so a lot of time spent on the computer, probably. Mm-hmm. Don't get to go out much anymore. None of us do. Um, <laughs> anyone that we should have our eyes on, whether um, established or you've seen sort of coming through the uh, songwriting course. More and more every year. There are more people that seem to figure it out, which is really amazing to see. Um, When I started about 12 years ago on this course, there weren't a lot of, I guess what you call them, success stories. You know, it was people would finish the degree and then they might get some gigs, might do some shows, they might release something. But um, for whatever reason, in the last few years we've had artists that have really taken it upon themselves to to follow through with their ideas super focused um able to navigate the ins and outs of the of the industry at a business level 
um, and not just a performance level, which mm-hmm. is probably becoming really, really important. You have to be your own manager. You have to be your own business advisor. You have to know how to organize your music onto streaming platforms. You have to be able to run your social media. There are just so many things that are required of an artist these days. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, um, you could just let the record company do that. Yep. And I've worked with artists in the past, you know, 20, 30 years ago, who honestly just had the most amazing time because their record label would take care of everything. They just get told where to show up. Make sure you write a hit song with this $100,000 we just gave you as an advance. Um, but those times are, are pretty much over and people have had to kind of figure out how to do it all themselves. A lot of those um, students that are finishing the degree are really figuring out. And it's not all the things that we're teaching them either. They're just doing this on their own volition. So I'm super proud of all our graduates. Um, so many great voices, so many great songs. I'm sure we will see them on uh, future editions of, of Garden of Sound. That's all that we have time for today, Godfrey, on this uh, 99th show. And we did talk before the interview, and it just so happens that the next track you want to play is 1999. How appropriate. So who is, um, who is this version of Prince's track performed by? Um, this is a Swedish, uh, sorry, a Finnish band called Toki Torstai. And I got into them um, watching the YouTube channel of this guitarist called Ossi Maristo, who is a phenomenal guitarist. I finally um, got the guts to email about three days ago and ask him if he'd play on my master's recording. Um, There's this particularly hard song that I'm pretty sure only he could pull off. And he said, yeah, love to. So I'm, I'm really stoked. But Finland is a great example of a, a, a country that promotes the arts really well and is investing highly in tertiary education and the kinds of um, exemplars of that education are people like Ozzy Maristo who, um, who are just phenomenal musicians, multi-instrumentalists, arrangers, composers, producers. Um, really inspiring and um, I, I try to get on the YouTubes as much as possible to see what they've been up to over in Finland. Fantastic. Well, this is a live arrangement of Prince's 1999 Talkie Torstai. Godfrey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ian.
Thank you so much for being here today. My guest was Godfrey de Groot. Head along to gardenofsound.nz and click on Godfrey's picture on the front page to check out a bespoke Spotify playlist of almost all the tracks we heard today. All right, that's all for Garden of Sound and will be for an as yet undetermined period of time. COVID has taken its toll in a number of ways. No, nothing serious. This is, however, a great opportunity for a refresh. So I hope to be back sooner rather than later with a brand new bag. In the meantime, keep well, keep listening and keep playing. Hi, Radar.